Welcome to my podcast, my dad podcast. This is the 1787 Project, the podcast version of the lectures for my socially distanced class on the U.S. Constitution at the University of Missouri. I'm your professor and host, Justin Dyer. Today, I want to do a quick recap and a coda to our last episode. We left off with the discussion of the related concepts of judicial review and judicial supremacy, and we ended with this conclusion. The Supreme Court is supreme in its interpretation of the Constitution, including its interpretation of the powers of the other branches of government, but only when other actors in American politics find it politically useful for the Supreme Court to be supreme. At times, though, Congress and the president have been willing to push back and challenge the notion of judicial supremacy. But there are also other times when the Supreme Court is not supreme for the simple reason that they don't have the authority to hear a case in the first place, or that they choose not to hear the case for whatever reason, or because the question presented is one that they think is political rather than legal and therefore not appropriate for judicial resolution. If the court doesn't take up the issue, then the court doesn't settle the issue. And there are plenty of constitutional questions that never make it to the Supreme Court in the first place. Consider three brief examples of how this works in practice drawn from your reading. The first is the case of ex parte McCardle in 1868. William McCardle was a Mississippi newspaper editor and an opponent of Reconstruction, and he's arrested by military authorities for publishing incendiary and libelous articles about the federal government. He challenges his detention in U.S. federal court. He argues that it violates his constitutional rights, but he loses there. He appeals his case to the U.S. Supreme Court. And after hearing oral arguments in the case, but before the Supreme Court has a chance to make a decision, Congress withdraws the Supreme Court's appellate jurisdiction in the case by law. And remember, Article 3 gives the Supreme Court original jurisdiction in just a handful of cases, and then it has appellate jurisdiction in all other cases, but, quote, with such exceptions and under such regulations as the Congress shall make. Well, in McArdle's case, Congress made an exception. They said to the Supreme Court, you can no longer hear this on appeal. Can they do that? That was essentially a question for the court before it rendered a judgment. And in the opinion written by Chief Justice Salmon Chase, the court said yes. Congress has the authority, even in the middle of a case, but before it's decided to withdraw the Supreme Court's jurisdiction from specific kinds of cases. Now, our second example, the case of Baker versus Carr in 1962. The Supreme Court has, over time, developed the political question doctrine, or the idea that there are some questions that are fundamentally political and not appropriate for judicial resolution. In technical terms, the court says that some questions are non-justiciable, and they give us some guidance about what kinds of questions those might be in this case. Baker v. Carr began when a Republican voter named Charles Baker sued the Tennessee Secretary of State Joe Carr, alleging that the malapportioned legislative districts in Tennessee meant that rural votes carried more weight than urban votes. This is back when southern rural voters were largely Democrats, and Carr thought this was unfair and that it violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Is this the kind of question that the federal courts should sort out? According to the Supreme Court, sure. The political question doctrine is about the separation of powers of the federal government, the court explained in this case. It's about the relationship between Congress, the president, and the court, and not about the relationship between the states and the nation. It's not about federalism. And since this case was about whether the federal government could require the states to have legislative districts with roughly equal populations in each district— The court said, sure, we can take that on. 
As the court's opinion held, quote, voters in malapportioned legislative districts suffer cognizable injury under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. This was, according to the court, a justiciable issue, perfectly appropriate for the court to handle. And in a similar case, just two years later, called Reynolds versus Sims, the court announced their famous one-person, one-vote standard for state legislative apportionment. But if drawing the boundaries of legislative districts isn't a political question, then what is? The court in this case gives us some pretty detailed guidelines for how to spot a political question. They list six criteria. First, There must be a textually demonstrable commitment of the issue to a coordinate political department. So you have to look at the Constitution and see that it clearly commits some issue to one of the other branches of government. Or there must be a lack of judicially discoverable and manageable standards for resolving the issue. There's just not a good way for courts to sort this out. Or there has to be an impossibility of deciding without an initial policy determination of a kind clearly for non-judicial discretion. Does it embroil the court in some kind of policy discussion that they're not competent to be a part of? Or there has to be the impossibility of a court's undertaking independent resolution without expressing lack of the respect due to the coordinate branches of government. Is this a matter of deference to other branches? Or... There might be an unusual need for unquestioning adherence to a political decision already made. The circumstances require that the court defer to other branches of government because some policy judgment has already been made. Or there might be the potentiality of embarrassment from multifarious pronouncements by various departments on one question. Does uniformity in decision-making and authority require that the court stand down? And when you look at those, there's a lot of wiggle room for the court to work with in deciding whether or not some particular issue is a political issue and not one that the court should take on. And crucially, for the Supreme Court, the judges will decide what a political question is and so remains supreme even in the interpretation of its own limits. As Baker versus Carr says, deciding whether a matter has in any measure been committed by the Constitution to another branch of government, or whether the action of that branch extends to whatever authority has been committed, is itself a delicate exercise in constitutional interpretation, and is a responsibility of this court as ultimate interpreter of the Constitution. In the logic of judicial supremacy, even the constitutional limits of the court's power and the Constitution's commitment of some matter to another branch of government are for the court to decide. Our third and final example, Nixon versus United States in 1993. This is not Richard Nixon, but Walter Nixon, a federal district court judge in Mississippi who's sentenced to federal prison for perjury. Nixon had accepted a bribe from a local businessman whose son was facing possible prison time for a state-level drug offense. Judge Nixon accepts this honorarium. He then speaks to a prosecutor who happens to be his personal friend, and the prosecutor then drops the case. The FBI starts to investigate, and when he's asked about this under oath during a grand jury hearing, Nixon lies about it. And for that, for lying to the grand jury, he's convicted of perjury and he's sentenced to five years in prison. You would think that meant he would lose his federal judgeship, but it doesn't. According to the Constitution, judges have life tenure. And the way that they're removed from office is either through resignation or through impeachment. And Nixon refused to resign. So while he's sitting in prison, he's collecting his generous judicial salary. The House of Representatives then take up his case. They file articles of impeachment against him. The Senate convicts him on those charges. And now the question is, will he be removed from office? But there was a problem, and Nixon highlighted it. There was only a committee of senators who held evidentiary hearings in the case before it was referred to the full Senate for a vote on the charges that had been brought by the House of Representatives. 
And Nixon said, well, that's not right. That's not actually a trial that the Constitution requires. But this is what the Constitution says about the impeachment power, and it's not much. Article 1, Section 2 about the House of Representatives says the House, quote, shall have the sole power of impeachment. And Article 1, Section 3 about the Senate says that the Senate, quote, shall have the sole power to try all impeachments. That's about it. So then the question, who gets to decide what the appropriate procedures are for a Senate impeachment trial? The Constitution clearly gives the power to the Senate, the sole power to the Senate, but it doesn't give the sole power to some Senate committee or subcommittee. And since the full Senate didn't participate in the evidentiary hearings, the impeachment proceedings were unconstitutional, according to Nixon, and he wants the court to declare those impeachment proceedings to be invalid. For the Supreme Court, here was a political question if there ever was one. There was a textually demonstrable constitutional commitment of some issue to a coordinate political department. The House has the sole power of impeachment. The Senate has the sole power to try all impeachments. Not only that, but the case is about the impeachment of a federal judge. Should other federal judges be allowed to say that Congress had exercised its powers in impeaching another federal judge in a way that violated the Constitution? Not according to the majority opinion written by Chief Justice William Rehnquist. As he wrote, judicial involvement in impeachment proceedings, even if only for the purposes of judicial review, is counterintuitive because it would eviscerate the important constitutional check placed on the judiciary by the framers. The one legislative check for malfeasance in office of judges is impeachment. Should the judges then be able to turn around and say, no, that impeachment doesn't count? For Rehnquist and the court then, impeachment was a political question. Not everyone on the court was convinced. Justices Blackman and White agreed that Nixon had been impeached properly, but they saw no reason why the court couldn't reach the merits of the case. And Justice Souter went out of his way to say that he could conceivably envision some circumstances where the court should actually review the fairness of the proceedings in an impeachment trial. One could imagine, he said, a situation where the Senate acts in a manner that seriously threatens the integrity of the results by, and the examples he gives would be something like convicting on a coin toss or on a summary determination that an officer of the United States was simply, quote, a bad guy. And he said in those circumstances, judicial interference might well be appropriate. But could we not put the same question back to the judiciary? What if the court decided their cases by a coin toss or because somebody's a bad guy or just gave a summary judgment that they prefer some policy over another. What then? The question takes us back to where we started, with the challenges and difficulties inherent in the concepts of judicial review and judicial supremacy, with constitutional checks and balances, and with the project of maintaining constitutional government over time. But now we have these new limitations on judicial power to consider and put into the mix. The first category would be congressionally imposed limitations on the Supreme Court's appellate jurisdiction we saw in the case of ex parte McCardle. Congress has enormous authority when it chooses to exercise it over the courts in structuring them, creating them, writing the rules in which they'll hear cases, and determining the appellate jurisdiction of the Supreme Court itself. The second category would be the self-imposed limitations of the court's own political question doctrine, which is a judicial determination not to reach the merits of a case because it represents a question that is fundamentally political and therefore not judicial. But both of these categories still leave a wide range of cases and issues involving the constitutional powers of the coordinate branches of the federal government, and the court's been very happy to weigh in on some of those. And so we'll turn and consider next some of the cases involving the constitutional separation of powers between the branches of the federal government.